Our context for our, our text here is, this is a, a second letter written, obviously, clearly, Second Corinthians. Paul is written to a church that he has planted. It was a church that he planted on his uh, second missionary trip. It has been roughly five years since then when he was writing originally to check up on the church. Uh, the first letter had come, Stephanatus, Fortunatus, and Achaicus, three guys, show up with this letter. And it really is, in essence, to do twofold. The original letter, the letter we have as first Corinthians in response to this. And the letter really, in the simplest sense, says that there are some symptoms to an ailing church. Uh, just like any doctor who would check, does it hurt here, does it hurt here, what are the symptoms? The symptoms were that there was a tolerance to, uh, to sin, specifically that of sexual sin. Paul would say in 1 Corinthians that it had gotten to the point where they were doing things that even the Gentiles would blush by or the unbeliever would blush by. And that's a crazy thing to say in a place like Corinth that was synonymous. Homer, by the way, and Socrates would both speak of a Corinthian as a person with no morals. So imagine, it would be the idea of somebody blushing from Vegas, or somebody blushing from Amsterdam. And it would take a lot. He's saying the church was doing this. They were suing each other, which is ironic, because that means they were tolerant to sin, but they were intolerant to personality, into offense. So in other words, they didn't mind you offending God, they just minded you offending them. And that there was this division aspect of it. People were identified more by their denomination and who they followed than Jesus. Which tells us that they were following Jesus was secondary. Physician Paul makes the diagnosis. You're carnal. You've given your life to Christ, but you're not seeking to become like him. But rather, you're seeking to become more like the world. I wouldn't call it the best of both worlds, by the way, to say that God is for saving eternally, but the world's for fun. That is a sick lie. Jesus didn't die to send you to heaven. He died to be with you. Heaven's the product of that. The second portion of that letter was questions. Ask Pastor Paul. From chapter 7 on, marrying meat, giving idols, men and women in, in service, Meat sacrifice to idols, giving, those are the kind of things. Spiritual gifts, the issue of love, how they're practiced in the church, the resurrection. All of those are addressed in those chapters 7 through 16 of the previous uh, letter. With Paul's judgment of the church being carnal, it's a church that's, please hear me. The moment you've said yes to Jesus Christ, and prayerfully you have, and if you don't know that there's a choice to make, let me just make that clear to start with, because it's foundational. Every human being starts out in the same place, spiritually stillborn. We are naturally destructive, naturally selfish, naturally self-reliant, naturally self-dot-dot-dot. And a perfect and just God has a right to punish all wrongdoing. That's clear and evident. But God so loved you and he so loved me, though, that every human being, and it's the only playing field that's level, that we all are guilty before God, made one provision, this God that loves you and me, that if somebody perfect was willing to step in your place with no crimes of himself to pay for, God would allow his provision if he was so willing. God, knowing the only person that qualifies is himself, steps down in the flesh of Jesus and dies on the cross for your and my sins. 
to prove it was enough and not just he was a delusional kind individual. Just like scripture promised, he rose again from the grave three days later. And then gives us the choice. Will you cash the check I've written for you? Will you accept the gift of ransom I've offered you? That puts you in a crisis. The word crisis is a Greek word. It means to change. It's a choice that you have to make. The same way that if somebody, ladies, was to propose to you, you'd be stuck in a crisis situation. You can say yes. You'll be receiving, of course, the relationship to a greater degree, assumedly, a commitment of an individual to spend the rest of his life with you. Traditionally, his provision, his protection, his presence, his pleasure. Or you can say no. In the same way, God has dropped a knee at the cross, risen again, and offered you the same, in essence, with him then as your groom. His provision, his protection, his presence, his pleasure are all what you gain at the saying of yes. Accepting Jesus as your Savior and as Lord. Here's the scary part. The moment you do that, God places within you a guarantee. The same way that ladies, if a man had dropped a knee to you and you said yes, you might wear a ring as a guarantee that he's going to fulfill the vow of marriage. I don't know if you've ever had a friend that's come to you and said, I'm engaged. And you say, let me see the ring. And they're like, oh, there's no ring. Is there a party that goes, uh-huh. There's some form of collateral. God's collateral is himself. And inside you, he's left his Holy Spirit. According to Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13, it says, Having believed the gospel of your salvation, the moment you said yes, He marked you with his Holy Spirit of promise, guaranteeing your inheritance. Here's the rough part. The moment you said yes to Jesus, the Holy Spirit begins the work of setting you apart. Changing your priorities, changing your value system, changing the way you see things. That's the problem if you want to still look like the world. Because inside you, God is doing such a work that you can no longer look like the rest of the world. You are the only living thing in the morgue. You cannot look the same. Even if you want to lay there and be inactive, you're still breathing and you still have a pulse. You still fog a mirror when put to your mouth, which the rest of the cadavers in the building are not doing. So the concept of trying to blend in with the world is a foolish one. Especially when what you're doing is fighting God's own Holy Spirit that's making you different. Now, I'm not telling you you cover yourself in some form of saran wrap, you know, put some kind of antlers on your head and say that you're protecting yourself from gamma rays because you're afraid you'll become the Hulk. Not that kind of different. The kind of different that has joy in the midst of rough trials, that has hope in the midst of what may appear to be a relatively hopeless situation that has peace when no one else would, that would not, that doesn't retaliate when others are already daydreaming the annihilation of those who have offended them. You are very different. And this church, somewhere down the line, has lost sight of that. Oh, they're practicing spiritual gifts. They're definitely charismatic. 
But it's interesting to see a church that could be so demonstrative in all of these quote-unquote spiritual areas and yet least demonstrative in that which looks most like Christ, that of love. So when Paul writes that letter, he talks about handing over the sinful brother, this man who was sleeping with his mother or stepmother. You can argue over that if you wish, according to the first. And that's a rough spot where you have to look at someone and say, you really shouldn't be here until you get that worked out. By this letter, he's repented. By this letter, the man has realized that he can't play both sides of this fence. And by this point now, Paul is seeking to get our minds in this place where we see eternity and let that gauge where we come from. That becomes the problem here. Christianity, from simply an earthly perspective, does look a bit daft. I would expect people to think so. When the world is sold on the pleasures of this world, money and power and fame, if it feels good, do it. Abuse who you need to to get it. And we applaud those who often, without ethic, attain the things we wish we had. And so God, through Paul, undertakes the mission of trying to give us an eternal perspective. And Christians, if you lose sight of eternity, the church will look like another social club, at best a benevolent social club, but just the same, a social club. And just another. And yet we have the eternal cure of Jesus Christ within us. And we must see things differently. Read with me chapter 5. We'll pick it up in the last half of it to walk through. Of course, that's just by way of introduction. God help us all. It says in verse 1 of chapter 5, For we know that if our earthly house, this tent, is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this we groan eagerly desiring to be clothed with our habitation, which is from heaven. If indeed, having been clothed, we shall not be found naked. For we who are in this tent groan, being burdened, not because we want to be unclothed, but rather further clothed, that mortality may be swallowed up by life. Now he who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who also has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. So we are always confident knowing that while we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight. We are confident, yes, well pleased rather, to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. Therefore we make it our aim, whether present or absent, to be well pleasing to him. And tonight we pick it up in verse 10 where it says, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what was done, whether good or bad. Knowing, therefore, the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. But we are well known to God, and I also trust are well known in your consciences. For we do not commend ourselves again to you, but we give you an opportunity to boast on our behalf, that you may have an answer for those who boast in appearance and not in heart. For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. If we are of sound mind, it is for you. For the love of Christ compels us because we judge 
thus, that if one died for all, then all died. And if he died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and then rose again. Therefore, from now on, we regard no one according to the flesh, even though we have known Christ according to the flesh, yet we know him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Now all things are of God, who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to him, and has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Do you see a repeated word here at the end? Now then, we are ambassadors of Christ, as though God were pleading through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf to be reconciled to God. For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Pray with me, would you please? Lord God, thank you for the privilege of this time you've given us. In your word now, Lord, speak to us. Minister to us. Lord, open our hearts to what it is you wish to tell us. Lord, immerse me in your spirit that you would be seen. Come upon me that you would do through me what I cannot humanly do. And speak to every one of us in our heart of hearts, in our ears, in our hearts, in our minds, in our spirits. God, that we would hear you today. And we would hear that which you have bespoke uniquely for us and corporately for us as a family. Lord, have your way now, I pray. Redeem every second in Jesus' name. Amen. I would say tonight, as I would any night, please do not just believe me. Do not assume it's true because I say so because they call me pastor or because I have an ordination or because I have a mic or a church or whatever the case is. The same as I would tell you, test all things. And that includes everyone you hear. It's this beautiful, perfect, tried, tested, and proven Word of God. Paul has made clear here in 2 Corinthians that there, are, there is some form of animosity. There is some form of anti-momentum against Paul. People don't have much problem with a leader until the leader has to be a real leader. Correcting those who are straying moving forward when those that would rather and be content in their complacency or compromise would rather stay where they are. And when Paul responds to a church and says, you are carnal, there are two natural responses, or should I say a natural and a supernatural. The natural is, who are you to say that? Who do you think you are? It doesn't matter who says it. People will do that to God. Who are you to put me in this trial? Who are you to kill my grandmother? Who are you to, and you get it, and not let me get this job, not let that girl like me, not let me land that house, whatever the case would be? Well, they are the cre- he is the creator, and the potter has a right to speak to the clay and do whatever he wishes with it. We were bought with a price we belonged to him. And when Paul speaks about disciplining this rebellious man, 
challenging the church to a greater level of commitment to Jesus Christ and to seek to become more like him and not like the world. There were those that repented. And when we get to chapter 7, one of my favorite chapters in this book, we'll speak about the two types of sorrow, a worldly sorrow and a godly sorrow, the godly sorrow that produces repentance and ultimately eternal life. But there are those, on the other hand, who are just offended. And that will always be the case. If a person comes in here with a gun and they seek to shoot every person in this place and Jay and Lucas overpower them, take this man outside, And he is quickly arrested and sent to jail. There could be naturally someone that would say, don't you think that was a little unloving? Don't you think you should have let him in the church long enough for him to hear the message? The man was wielding a gun. There will always be that, just like in the book of Numbers. If you remember, when Korah and leaders from Reuben gathered together against Moses. Now, in no way do I view myself as Moses here. That's certainly not the point. And they kind of, in the simplest sense, say, who died and made you boss? Moses' response is at God's command and is, well, if God has really ordained me and not you, then then let something brand new happen that we've never seen before. Let the ground open its mouth and swallow you guys up. This was at the command of the Lord. The ground opens up its mouth, swallows Korah and the rest of these people, 250 people in this rebellion. It was a pretty wild sight. None of us, I would imagine, would have expected it when we woke up that morning. The craziest part to me is how many people gathered together after that and said, you killed mighty men of God, Moses. It's unbelievable how that can happen, but it does. Well, then we get the idea here that there are those that are both. Now, how do you go against the guy who planted the church? What criteria could you possibly use against Paul? I mean, the man is writing the Bible, for goodness sakes. Well, it's simple. All you have to do is take it to the outside. Remember in the book of 1 Samuel, when Saul is being replaced, Samuel is being sent to replace Saul, ultimately it will be with King David who is the youngest of eight boys, and seven boys are brought in the house to be paraded. David's the only one who isn't called in. He's actually still tending the sheep. And as Samuel looks at the first man, he looks at him, he's a strapping, good-looking guy, and he thinks, surely this must be the guy. He's going to look great on a stamp. Oh, on a five-pound note, will he look good? And God says, nope. You're looking as men look, Samuel. For man looks at the outer appearance, but it's the Lord who looks at the levav, or the inside. We'd say it is as the heart. And though he may have looked great on a five-pound or a ten-pound note, he didn't look really good from the spectacles of heaven. And the reason I say that is, is that if you really want to go after a person who is completely sold out to Christ... Go after the outside. Now, I'm not talking about his behavior, but his circumstances. Paul was unwell physically. Paul was unrich financially. Paul was unliked socially. 
the things that those in the world seek. Do you remember? When the most important things seem to be to be liked? To be wealthy, because if you got wealthy, you could be liked. To become powerful, because if you became powerful, you could be liked. To become famous, because if you had become famous, perhaps you could be liked. I didn't come to know Jesus until I was 19 years old. I wasn't raised in a Christian home. I went to a parochial school, was kicked out because I asked questions. I was only eight or nine, and now that I look at my youngest child, I see how that probably could have happened. But I joined, my mom was a jazz singer. My dad was a professional athlete, played professional baseball in, in America. And so music came fairly quick, and I started studying. My fourth birthday, they brought in a piano that had been rescued from a tavern that had burned down. Still smelled like smoke. It was black. I thought that was actually its original color. Turns out that was just the smoke damage. The good news is it made it very mellow, so it wasn't terribly loud in a very small house with concrete floors. You can imagine how quickly that bounced all around. And I banged on it relentlessly for an entire year until they said, we need to stop this. I know. Let's get them lessons. And they tried to find one of those people that probably works at like Guantanamo Bay or someplace that where they torture people. And they brought her in and she was really good at form and technique. I'll grant you that. She was certainly, you know, the kind of person that turns love into math. And, but it backfired. By the six or seven, I started writing music and it would just, it just kept going from there. All of that to say this, by the time you hit in secondary school, Your primary motivation, or I should say my primary motivation, was to be liked. That was it. My mother had passed away. My father had, in essence, run away from home. He was gone all the time, and then he was gone. And so you have these dirty little secrets. Your house was a bit of a mess, and you just try to get people to like you. And I joined a rock band. I joined a rock band simply because I wanted to be liked. Through a series of events, we wound up becoming fairly popular, fairly quick. And we were playing in front of very large stadiums of people. But by the time you get to that place, you have built such a facade of a character by trying to, in essence, internally survey what you think people would like, that you've now created a character that's sort of a cartoon, a two-dimensional icon of yourself that isn't even really you at all. And it doesn't matter how much people like it. It's just not you that they like anyways. And it was empty and it was miserable. And through a series of events, there was a young lady that came from my neighborhood, a fairly rough neighborhood on the south side of Chicago. She knew a lot more about me than the average person who saw the candy-coated shell of nothingness. And as the band became more and more popular, she became more and more interested. And I'm going to be as honest and transparent with you as I can here. I thought the most noble thing to do would be to be unromantic with anyone beyond a certain point. I really wanted her to like me and not leave. But I really wanted to not commit to anything. And that is cruel. 
In retrospect, I recognize that that is cruel. But I'm being as honest and as vulnerable and as transparent as I can with you. And so there's that weird place of just trying to give just enough to keep her, but not give enough to try to think that she has anything to hang on. Until it got to the point where she'd sent a letter that turned out to be a suicide letter. And it was then that I realized this is what happens in its rawest form when you live just to use people to validate yourself. You kill them. You suck them dry. By God's grace, by God's grace, the Lord broke through all of that and showed me enough to show me how He saves selfish users like me. I swear I'd never been in another band. I was actually in a record contract office with my lawyers and their lawyers and the whole bit talking over points and percentages. I walked out and left everything by God's grace. I swear I'd never be in another band, and I swear I'd never be in front of people. Oddly enough, several years later, after finding Christ, the Lord put me in a Christian band, and we toured internationally in Russia. And when we were in Russia... I was brought into the office because you can't get internet everywhere in Russia. Pretty much you can't get internet almost anywhere in Russia, at least where we were. But they brought us into the office, and there there was an email waiting for me. Are you that Tony Holiday I remember from days of yore? This is Karen. I'm a youth pastor now, a youth leader with my husband at a church in St. Paul. By God's grace, Karen had never killed herself. But God got a hold of her and changed her. Now hear me on all that. The only reason I tell you all of that is to let you know that the outer appearance can be very different from the inside. And the praise of men is a foolish thing to seek. And to be lit, to live by. And when these group of people that have retaliated against Paul's rebuke, his instruction, say, who does he think he is? He's not rich, so God's not blessing him. He's not healthy, so God must not be blessing him. He's not light, so God must not be blessing him. Which tells you what kind of doctrine they were under, kind of the health, wealth, prosperity, and popularity doctrine. If you really think God wants to prosper you, I would say I agree. If you think the best thing that God has to offer you is money, you are selling God short. Because everything that people want in money, we have, whether we have the money or not. The peace, the joy, it can't actually be purchased except by the blood of Christ. So they're like, who does he really think he is? By the end of this, notice he says, so look, from this point on, can we stop trying to judge people from the outside? Can we stop saying, okay, the black people are here, the white people are here, the young people over here, the old people here. This is an old person church. This is a young person church. This is a black church. This is a white church. This is an Asian church. This is an African church. 
What's interesting is, is that if you go to one of those places and you're not one of those things, then you might be second class. That's never the way God intended church to be. I love the fact that you could be whoever you are here in this, as he tells us in this chapter. Whoever is in Christ is a new creation. You've been washed by the same blood as I have if you've known Jesus Christ and you accepted him. And there is no place that's unique for the Nepalese or the Brazilian or the British or the Britarican or the whatever or the Italian. We're Christian and our citizenship is in heaven. You want to display your culture? Do it at Thanksgiving when you all make dishes from your native land. I'm glad to eat with all of you. But if we can't get our identity from Christ, there will always be division. So Paul says in verse 10, and we better go through our text, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Let me tell you something every human being has in common. We're all sinners. We will all stand before God and we're all appointed to die. Hear me, Hebrews 9 and 27 Note this, it tells us, it is appointed unto man to die once, and then to judgment. So any hope for a second chance, or that you'll be reincarnated as a cockroach, or a politician, or better, dare I say, it's not scriptural. We will all stand before the Lord. If he comes back before you die, you'll still stand before him, and if you... Cash in that wonderful tent that you're wearing right now. One way or another, you're going to stand before him. And he says, therefore, we are motivated by the terror of that. And this is Paul speaking. Well, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Look at this verse. Verse 10, it says, and many will receive what was done in the body. Wait a minute, done in the body? I thought we were saved by grace. I mean, after all. Doesn't it say in Ephesians 2.8 that's by grace you've been saved, not by works, lest you should boast? And then we get to the book of James and we go, well, wait a minute, I don't get James. Matter of fact, Martin Luther called the book of James an epistle of straw. Because he was so caught up in the concept of grace that he couldn't get what James was saying. And I get it because James says, by the way, in chapter 2, verse 17, he says, look it, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. And the whole focus in James seems to be do something. Kind of the Nike symbol kind of thing. How do you reconcile those things? Well, it's actually rather simple. First of all, let's get to these two key points. Here's the first of these two simple points. The first is that if you were going to go worship God 3,000 years ago, you would go to a temple. If it was... 3,400 years ago, you might go to a tabernacle. And in that tabernacle, or in the temple, when you approached, they didn't size you up. They didn't look and go, hmm, do me. Are you perfect? I think we'd all know the answer, with all due respect. You're just like the rest of us. It was never about how perfect you were. It was about your sacrifice. You were to take a sacrifice without blemish. See, you couldn't choose your perfection, per se. Let's face it, once you've flawed yourself, 
You can't unfly yourself if that's the way you're looking at it. But you can choose your sacrifice. So Lamara goes to the temple, the east side, where there's the door, and they look and they size up her sacrifice so that she can offer it and enjoy fellowship with others, other children of God, and fellowship with the living God. Might I say, that's exactly the point. When you say, what right have any of us to stand before God at his judgment? Let me ask you, what's your sacrifice? Is it your works? That's fine, as long as they're perfect. They've never been without false intent. They've never been wavering. They've always been perfect from beginning to end. Any of you qualify? You're aware of the fact I'm checking to see if you're delusional or not by asking such a question. You're a good person because you haven't raped or killed someone, but are you perfect? But God has given us the provision of Jesus Christ, God's perfect Son, who we read at the end of this chapter, God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God. If you've accepted the gift of Jesus Christ, you have your chosen sacrifice. If you haven't, I'm going to give you that choice tonight, because I wouldn't want you walking out of here without having that ability to make that choice. To give you the respect to say yes or no. Well, hear me. If you have made such a choice, then from that point on, again, as God starts transforming us, different things start happening. And the point of James is, the person who says, I believe in God, and how many people do you talk to like that? Oh, I believe in God. James seems to, by the way, it seems to be Jesus' half-brother. He seems to be what we might call a nosebleed friend. The kind of person that when they tell you the truth, they tell it to you so squarely you get a nosebleed from it. You know, there are only certain people you ask something like, how do I look? Some people you expect to say nice. I have an 11-year-old daughter. I'm very careful what questions I ask. She's a nosebleed truth girl if I've ever known one. She'll say it to a stranger, and I have to be very careful of that. I know that Lucas at his Bible study has one of those guys that they just speak their mind. Usually that's the drummer that speaks what other people are thinking, but clears the air calls the white elephant in the room. Well, hear me. Somewhere down the line, if we were going to stand before God and His judgment, and He's looking at our sacrifice, we get that. And yet, love keeps no record of wrongs. He's washed away all of our sins, cast them as far as east is from west. We understand that it isn't good that He's going to judge our bad comments, our bad things. If we've laid them before the Lord now, the blood of Christ has washed us. But listen, what James says is, there are people out there just saying they believe, but there's nothing in their life, nothing in their life that looks like it. It doesn't change them at all. And James, in its simplest sense, he's just, he's a hard sell. He's like, I don't buy it. I don't believe you. I don't believe if you're just saying, I believe in God, but I'm still doing everything contrary to him. You're doing everything to hurt him. Like, how exactly is that you placed your life in his hands? And James says, you know, you really want to show me what you're... He goes, like, you can show me your faith by what you don't do. I want to show you my faith by what I do. So you see the guy, and he's dating the girl, and he says, no, this is the one. I'm serious. This is it. I'm going to marry her. But he's still out scoping other girls. He's still out with the boys all the time, and he never wants to be with her. There's a part of me that looks and thinks, I'm not really sure if I'm confident in that commitment. 
And then he's out going out with other girls and he's on these dates and he's on these long Skype calls or whatever and then all of this. And they're like, no, 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 that's my girl. And you're like, you know what? I'm not really confident. Well, that's what it looks like. And what Paul says is that we're going to all stand before the judgment seat of God. Now, here's the good news. Is that when God speaks about it, it says, for instance, in Romans, that he'll bring to light the hidden things of, it, of darkness. He goes, and then, listen to this, then each man's praise will come from God. That's the part you miss. You see, the judgment seat is not just the place where a guilty person can stand and be declared guilty. Jesus speaks about that, if you remember, in Matthew 25, when he speaks about separating the sheep and the goats. But it's also the place where the Roman procurator would sit down and award the Olympia that was the winner. And that's the weird part we miss. Because when we come to Christ, we kind of think, well, that's it. I'm just done. I'm just not going to do bad stuff anymore. And God's going to just say, well, that was good. At least you didn't do any more bad stuff. But God's like, look it. Let's get into training and let's do something great now. Let's actually let God transform us and make us world changers. In other words, you were dying with Ebola. God transformed you and then wanted to turn you and then gave you the cure and gave you millions of them. Go to the other people who have Ebola and start transforming them and see them healed. That's the dangerous part, is when we go, I'm just well, God just made me well, so I could be well. Actually, you went to the hospital because you, because you were really ill, and you should come out a doctor. That's the point here. And the Lord would really like to use every one of us. He would like to use every one of us because if you really think it's my job to go out and reach 14.95 million people in the greater metropolitan London area, how busy do you think you want me to be? And there are some people, by the way, that they're not going to get me. To be honest, just the American part of this Praterican will chase some people off. I heard a story by Billy Graham. Not like we were having lunch, but he was telling a group of us that was several thousand of us, and I happened to be there. And in the story, he was talking, you know, Billy Graham, about how he was actually at this cafeteria after one of his crusades. And as he sat down and he got his things, I'll have the meatloaf and I'll have the gravy. And he sat down and he had his meal. And these two gals, these older gals, came up to him. And one gal had kind of the purple hair that kind of comes sometimes with, I don't know, anyway. So they kind of came and they kind of looked, they kind of looked over and they went, excuse me. He's like, uh, uh, yes. But has anyone ever told you, you look a lot like Billy Graham? He's like, well, ma'am, that's... That's because I am Billy Graham. And the woman turns to her friend and goes, Do you believe the nerve of this guy calling himself Billy Graham? And they were just all in a huff. They just ran off and sat on their table. And Billy knew there was no way he was going to be able to sit and talk to them about the Lord. This is Billy Graham we're speaking of here. But the waitress, who looked like something that came out of the Tate Modern, pierced in all parts of her body when the wind blew, it probably whistled. She would have, I mean, it would have taken her six hours to get to a metal detector. Hair, several different colors of snow cone colors. Sees these older gals who are three, maybe four times their age, her age. And she, she goes, I love your purple hair. And the older gal goes, oh, well, I kind of like your hair too. And the gal starts sharing Jesus with him. She takes out her little Bible. And Billy Graham, she goes, I learned something from that. He goes, look, I'm not called to change to go and preach the gospel to everyone. I'm going to, call, I'm going to preach the gospel to who the Lord puts before me. But I wonder who that is for you. Who that is for you. It'll be the person that's 
on the bus that breaks down next to you. It's the employee that's sad to see you go. It's the friend that somehow you have listening rights with. Use it. See, when you stand before the judgment seat of God, I guarantee you God's not going to go and he's going to say, well, let me see. Were you rich? Hmm. Were you well? Hmm. How many friends did you have? Hmm. I don't know, Peter. What do you think? Three out of three is just not doing very well over here. Are you thankful? God's not judging from that outer appearance. And that's what Paul's saying here. Like, we're all going to have to stand before him. And it's very serious. Because if we had a view of that eternity, we'd actually have compassion on our opponents. Because if we saw where that goes, where... And by the way, let me just challenge you in this. When you read Matthew 25... Those that he calls his sheep on his right, he says, go to the place, listen, listen, prepared for you before the foundation of the world. Now, I I like that part. Before God even created the world, he had already prepared a place where we're going to spend eternity together. But then when he turns to the goats, and I'm going to just look over here, since I don't want to, that wouldn't be cruel. So over here, he says, go to the place prepared for the devil and his angels. God didn't build hell for people. Oh, there will be, people will go there. He didn't build hell for it. He built heaven for it. He doesn't want you to go there. Jesus, you want to go to hell? Over my dead body. (laughs) And it won't stay dead while you try to crawl over it. All right, listen. In this text, Paul is getting us to this place. Listen, and I'll give you a few verses just to kind of pull this out. And we'll move forward because the rest of it picks up. It says, for instance, in Matthew chapter 16, verse 27, the Son of Man will come in His glory of His Father with His angels, and He will give reward to each one according to their works. 1 Corinthians 3.14 tells us if anyone's work that he is built on indoors, he'll receive a reward. Therefore, it tells us in 1 Corinthians 4.5, judge nothing before its time. It's the Lord who will bring or reveal the hidden things of darkness and the counsels of the hearts, and then each one's praise will be. Jesus says in, Ro- in Revelation 22:12, Behold, I am coming quickly, and my reward is with me. Have you ever thought about that part? That's like, well, that's weird. I don't want to like, just do stuff to get reward from God. How about just be the best that he's called you to be? Let God worry about the rest. It tells us in Ephesians 6, 8, Whatever good anyone does, he will receive the same from the Lord. It doesn't matter whether you're a slave or free. Verse 11 says, Therefore, knowing the terror of the Lord, we persuade men, but we're well known to God. And I trust we're also well known to you guys. You guys know who I am here. This is the church that was planted by Paul. And Paul goes, are you really going to let these guys say that? They're like, I don't even know if this guy's a Christian. I don't know if he has a calling. Look, he's sick. He's not liked. He's, he's obviously poor. And I get that. The religious leaders, the Sanhedrin, taught that God's blessings were rich. You can imagine how weird that was when Jesus spoke, by the way, about the Pharisee and the sinner. And now the Pharisee, God doesn't even pay attention to his prayer, but it's the sinner that beats his breast and says, God, have mercy on me, sinner that I am. And it's this the one that walks out rectified by God. Or when God speaks about Lazarus and the rich man, you're familiar with the parable in the Gospel of Luke. 
And how it's Lazarus, the poor man begging that had open running sores that the dogs tended to? That this is the one that was comforted at Abraham's bosom while the wealthy man fared sumptuously on earth? Now, God doesn't say rich people go to hell. That's not the point. But he does say, you who evaluate God's blessing with monetary gain, you better watch out. Evaluating a church's success by how many people come is a dangerous thing. It's just another worldly way of looking at the outside. If I wanted it to be a packed church, and that was my only concern, we'd give away free beer at the door. The place would be packed. But then I would be guilty before God with every person as I don't tell them about sin and make it a social club. I'd rather have a group of people that I know, as Paul would say to the Ephesian elders in Miletus, I'm innocent of the blood of all men, for I have not hesitated, but to proclaim to you the whole counsel of God. You go, why does he go so long? Because he wants to make sure you got the whole counsel. Because I love you and I love me enough that I want to be innocent before God. So listen. Therefore, and this is the whole point of it. If we really think Jesus died for everyone, and everyone who receives him then follows suit, buried with him in baptism, raised in the newness of life. Jesus no longer is the person he was before. He was raised new. And that's so far, so are we. And therefore, let's stop looking at it the old way. Stop looking at it the old way because we're not the old person anymore. So stop acting like the old person. That's the point. That guy died at the cross. Praise God. The violent, angry, confused individual I was died at the cross. The user died at the cross. So that Christ could resurrect a better person. Glory to God that looks like him. In all of us. Therefore, verse 17, and that's our context for a verse that's often quoted. If anyone's in Christ, he's a new creation. That's the point here, beloved. Old things have passed away. Who you were, desperate, empty, addicted, that's the person God nailed to the cross. You go, well then, who am I? All I know is, and let's face it, in my case, after 19 years of, of, of sinning, I was well acquainted with the nasty, rotten sinner that I had become. And of course, I was completely unfamiliar with the baby in Christ, what that looked like. So you know what we do? We start building our identity by calling, we just attach an X to it, right? Ex-violent, ex-drinker, ex-addict, ex-whatever. And that means, what that means is we're identified by our tombstones. But it's still the outer part, isn't it? Can I just say that when Jesus brought the people up to the hill and there they were, brand new creations. I mean, remember in, in Matthew chapter 4, right at the end of it, the disciples bring all of these people. They were demoniacs. So they were possessed and they were powerless and they were paralyzed and they were brought to Jesus and he heals them all. And there's pots of there's piles of cots and piles of chains and piles of crutches that will never be needed again. And all these people look and they're like, who am I? I've always been the basket case. I've always been the floozy. I've always been the addict. I've always been the crazy person. I've always been the what? Who am I now? Do you remember how he starts the thing we call the Sermon on the Mount? You know what you are? You're blessed. That's what you are. You're blessed, you're blessed, you're blessed, you're blessed. You're blessed, you're blessed, you're blessed, you're blessed. That's what he tells us. That's how you start it. That's what I am now. I'm blessed. I may not know much, but I know this much. I'm saved and I'm blessed. I'm forgiven and I'm his. That's a great place to start. You know what I am? 
I'm reconciled. That's where all that fits in. So the last part of this, 18 through the rest of 21, notice there are one, two, three, four, five different times he's going to mention the word. Now all things are of God. Now all things are of God. Before, some of it was of the world. Some of it was of our selfish ambition. Lots of it was. Now all things are of God. Is it, wouldn't it be great if we could say that? My dreams are of God. My values are of God. My priorities are of God. The way that I view you is of God. The way that I look at the world is of God. My Everything that I want to see happen is of God. Could you imagine? The way my relationships are of God. Oh, I crave that to be the case. Our church is of God. My calling of God. My identity is of God. He goes, well, that's the way it should be. Because we're new creations now. And he's reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ. And has given us now the ministry of what he's done to us. What he's done to us, now he wants to turn and have us do to others. He has reconciled us. We were his enemies. We have offended him, and he paid our debt. Do you realize how crazy that is? And what's crazier is some of, we still live lives that often offend him, and he still forgives us. It's a, it's, it really is almost an unbelievable story, except it's true. And he's reconciled us to him. Though we were enemies, he died for us. God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not, and this is how he did it, not imputing their trespasses to him. And has committed to us now the word of reconciliation. This is what I get to do now. This is what you get to do now. And when I look at a person out there, have you ever seen somebody that says they don't believe in God, but they, their blood boils when they talk about him? They start to sweat and their voice trembles and they get angry. Hey, I don't believe in Santa Claus or the Easter Bunny or the Tooth Fairy, but don't expect me to get all worked up about it when I tell you about it. I hope that doesn't like crush any of you. Anyways. The bottom line is, there are a lot of things I don't believe in, but it doesn't make me mental. I don't hate what I don't believe in. That doesn't make sense to me. So the bottom line is, if we recognize what they're really saying, we get a better understanding of what it really means to believe in someone. If I were to say that I believed in Deborah, you'd more than likely assume that I'm not just saying I think she exists. That I have faith in her character. Wouldn't that be what you'd say if you'd say I believe in you? Unless it's a Disney film, but otherwise that's normally what we're saying. When someone says, I don't believe in God, I get it. It isn't like they're necessarily, not necessarily saying they don't think he exists. They just have no interest in handing their life to him. They are at enmity. Can you imagine living your whole life fighting the love that is offered you? Do you remember, some of you, what that was like? It was hard work, wasn't it? It was exhausting. And every sunset that was painted in the sky, you had to mark up with for chance. Every beautiful miracle around you, you had to mark up with luck. Every human being that you saw in the car that should have run you over but ran out of gas right before it got to you, you had to mark up with fate. That's a lot of work to try to create, to mark off every miracle that you, that ex, that you experience in your life that you refuse to account. And you have to put great, great trust in the concept that perhaps... All of this is meaningless and just by chance, that by uh, a billion, well, 
14 trillion fortuitous fusions and fissions. You came to be as a series of tissues that breathe and think, and there's no real soul there, but you're just like a cow. And you have to try to find a purpose in life when you're being taught that there's no purpose in life. That's a rough world to live. Well, a God constantly calls out to you in every breeze and every flower that grows through the pavement to remind you that no matter how much cement you put on, you're not going to stop it from happening. We have a driveway in front of our house. It's like half driveway and half lawn now. They have thrice now coated it. We're renting, so we assume that somebody handles that kind of thing, and they've tried. They've sanded it, they've covered it, they've coated it. They've done everything legal that I'm aware of except use nuclear weapons and firearms. Man, you are not stopping that stuff from growing through. I'm getting to the point, I'm like, why don't you just pull the brick and I'll start mowing it. It's beautiful what God does. He can take pollution in the sky and turn it into colors that we only see that, that pale our crayon box. You can take a human being that was utterly hopeless and desperate and destitute and transform them into one of the greatest blessings. Hear me as we bring this to a close. Because we're going to see that we are, we have a title here in verse 20. There's a story in the Kings. Israel has been besieged. Do you know what that means? You are surrounded by by an army. Remember, most cities are up on hills because then you have gravity to your favor. But the problem is water doesn't run upstream. And you have to get your food. And it isn't like they're going to let in the truck, the Tesco trucks. So sooner or later, it gets pretty desperate. And the idea is actually, it's maniacally brilliant in the sense that if you surround them, there's too much pride to go out and fight with you initially. They're hoping you'll go home. But sooner or later, you're starving so much that by the time you actually do go out to fight, you are so weak, you're sitting down. Does that make sense? So they're all Syrians are all surrounding them. They're just waiting for Israel to come out of Jerusalem. And at this point now, people are eating people. It really is. It's as desperate as it gets. I mean, they're just, they're, they're, they're fighting over dove dung. I, I don't know. Anyways. And there are three guys at the gate. They're lepers. They have a death sentence physically upon them. It's pretty rare. And especially in that culture, you have leprosy, that's it. No one thinks, I'll probably not have leprosy. You just assume this is death. Like AIDS in many countries, or to be honest, Ebola in much of the world right now. Which, by the way, are you aware of it? Do you know where Ebola comes from? Do you know how that transferred to human beings? When we went through Leviticus, by the way, we were told not to eat a lot of things. Do you remember that? Side note. Do you remember bats as being on the list? Some of you were like, dang it. I love bats. No, none of you said that, right? Bats carry Ebola. It doesn't harm them. But you eat bat, and it can transfer to human beings. That's how Ebola made its way into human beings. Oh, no. God, that's why he said don't eat bats. Side note. Back to our story. These guys are at the gate, and they're looking at each other, and like, you know what? If we wait right here, we're going to die. If we stay in the city, we're going to die. 
If we hand ourselves over to the Syrians, they might just shoot us and we die. Or maybe they'll take us in and we can eat. Strange thought. But what the heck. They're like, die, 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 maybe die. That's our best option. You with me so far? Pretty simple story, right? They head into the camp of the Syrians. Guess what? There's not a Syrian to be found. There's food in the fridge, if you pardon me for saying. I mean, they've set up camps, obviously. There's not fridges, but yeah. There's food on the tables. There's clothes left everywhere. Weapons left everywhere. And they think, oh, this is a sick joke. They're going to have us come in here, try to eat, and then they're going to just they're going to jump out of some corner like, boo, and kill us. I know it. So you imagine, you're kind of looking around, thinking this is a little crazy. And sooner or later, you kind of get the idea it's just not happening. See, an angel in the night, an angel had come in the, at night and scared them all away. I just love it. God's just so fun. So all of the Syrians, oh, we're big, we're bad, ah! And they ran like little girls out of the room. Leaving everything behind. Their big screens, their iPhones, doesn't matter, it was all left. Here's the point of it. It got to a point where these guys were, as you might at a moment like that, they ate until they were like a Brazilian barbecue for me and my daughter. It's like you're just sweating beef, you know, and you're just like, oh, I just can't eat anymore. Oh, my goodness, except for that, you know, and you're looking and they look at each other and they're like, you know what? What is wrong with us? We are here eating more than we can possibly eat. Well, everyone that we love is in there starving to death. Is there something wrong with us? We better go tell them. Can I ask you, when are we going to get to that point? When am I going to get to that point? My family like, how much of this can I dive into without not sharing it, without sharing it with other people? Now, I'm not putting a heavy trip on us. My challenge to you is get so full that you start sweating it and then give it to people. And the bottom line is what he tells us here is, listen, in the end of it all, everything that we gain is going to be cashed in. Everything we can see, it's going to be cashed in. But people, on the other hand, that's the thing that's in the balance. And that should be the big thing because that's the eternal thing we're dealing with around us, our human beings. And I want to be able to say, you know what? This leper has found life. And you can have it too. Jesus is the answer. And this is how it ends. Therefore, God made him who knew no sin to be sin. Because if Jesus didn't become sin, well, wait a minute, but he didn't sin. Exactly, but sin is what needed to be punished. So there's an argument between me and Jenny, and between us is a boulder because of the horrible offense of what Jenny has done. Notice I made her the bad person in this. And Jenny thinks, well, that's okay. I'll just be nice now. But there's still a boulder between us. She's a nicer person on the other side of the boulder. The boulder has to be removed. Does that make sense? The boulder is my guilt. It's your guilt. Jesus, what he did is he didn't, get, he didn't push Jenny over the boulder. He became the boulder and then took the punishment so the boulder could be removed. That's the point. Now, as we go to prayer, have you accepted the gift of Jesus Christ? Now I'm asking, notice I didn't ask, did you go to church? I mean, let's face it. You could walk into a Jamie Oliver's. That doesn't make you a chef. You can walk into an MOT. It doesn't make you a mechanic. And you can walk into a church. It doesn't make you a Christian. But you could learn to become a chef there, or you could learn to become a mechanic. And you could learn to be in, so here you are. You're in church, and guess what? This is how a person becomes a Christian. You must be born again, Jesus tells us. How does that happen? It's the uniting of your will 
with God's. And it's a simple thing. You accept the gift of Jesus Christ and surrender yourself to him. Come out with your hands up. If you do that, he is willing to transform you right now. If you have said yes, here's my challenge to you. Will you still come out with your hands up? And say, all right, Lord, well then use me. Don't just make me well, make me a doctor. Don't just fill me, make me a chef. Use me then to get to the others who are starving. Because, and this is what it says, that we are now ambassadors. Do you know what an ambassador is? It's somebody who represents another country. Should you blend in? You're from another country. And I don't mean that physically. Remember, we're talking eternally. You're a citizen of heaven. You are very different from the world around you. And you're an ambassador there. You're a travel agent. You tell people, hey, have you ever met anyone and you thought, man, I should go to their country because they seem awesome? I have. Hey, the moment Sister Ange started baking and making, like, those jerk wings, I thought, Jamaica, I want to start talking. Oh, man. You know, just everything started to change. Deborah starts baking something that's got noodles in it, and I thought, oh, I start talking with my hand. It's, and it's like, and that's just food, so you can see where I am. Well, anyways, what if people went and said, where are you from? And you were like, Brazil. And they're like, no, 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 really. Like, where are you coming from? Because wherever it is, I want to be there. I want to check that place out. Well, funny, you know how you get there? Through reconciliation. Do you know how you get reconciled? Through Jesus Christ. That's what happens. Can I introduce you to the one who writes your visa and gives you permanence? Will you pray with me? Lord, thank you so much for this beautiful text. Thank you for the blessing, Lord. Jesus, you didn't have to make this choice, but you did. You know if you didn't, we wouldn't have the choice that we have. But you made the choice to be sin for us so that that sin could be punished. But to punish sin, that means that if you became sin, you had to be punished. If the way to treat sin is to kill it, you were killed. And you died just as Scripture promised you would. That the penalty of my sin could be properly punished. And you rose again just like Scripture promised. And so, Lord, thank you that you've done all the work and the only thing that you've left me with is a choice. I pray for every Christian here, myself included, that you turn us into the ambassadors you call us. We read even as Paul says this, if you were pleading through us, like Moses, I'm sorry, like Noah, that you tell us was a, in the Peters, that he was a preacher of righteousness, of to get right with God because it's coming down. Let us be preachers of righteousness. Plead through us the ministry of reconciliation as we are ambassadors. Make us ambassadors of our citizenship in heaven that we could preach the ministry of reconciliation through Jesus Christ, who knew no sin but became sin for us, that we could become your righteousness. So for every Christian here, we come with our hands up and say, Lord, transform us now. Make us yours. 
And then make us ambassadors. Ambassadors so that others would say, wherever you're from, I want to go. And Lord, in this room or within the sound of this voice, if there be any who have yet to receive this gift of Jesus, show them that now. Beloved, if you're not sure, you can walk out of here sure. I'm going to pray a prayer and I ask you to listen. And at the end, if you agree, I ask you to give a confident and resounding amen. And what you're saying is, let those words be my words. So be it in my life. And here's the prayer. God in heaven, I'm a sinner. And you tell me the wages of sin is death. But you so loved me, you sent Jesus to die on the cross for me so that my sins could be properly paid. And that he died and rose again just like your scripture promised. And I say yes to Jesus' payment on my behalf to restore and reconcile me to you. That all my punishment be, be properly properly advocated and yet I could be reconciled to you. So I confess Jesus is my ransom, my Savior, and as I tonight hand myself over to you as your clay for your artistry, your masterpiece, make my life a blessing to others now. Jesus, be my Lord. And if you agree with that, I ask you to give a confident Amen. So Lord, now cement that in our hearts. Fill us with a hunger for your word. A joy in fellowship. And a brilliant intimacy in prayer. Develop within us that witness now. Radiate through us and make us your ambassadors. Jesus' name. Amen.